Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth Podcast. The Running with the Devil edition. As we look ahead to Sunday's game in Baltimore as the Bengals try to slow down the Ravens' formidable running game led by Lamar Jackson. And by the way, RIP to Eddie Van Halen, who passed away this week at the age of 65, one of the greatest guitarists of all time. Coming up, Dave Lapham joins me to discuss why Joe Mixon was so effective last week and if Alex Redmond should remain at right guard even after Xavier Suofilo returns from injury. This week's one-on-one player interview is with Safety Von Bell as we find out who gets more done before 10 a.m. Bell or Horde? And finally, it's our Know the Foe segment as we get an in-depth look at the Ravens from a guy known as Nasty Nestor in Baltimore talk show host and author, Nestor Aparicio. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Prime Sport, the official hospitality partner of the Cincinnati Bengals. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. It's the greatest thing since all of the great Bengals content out there. Here's a shout-out to all of the folks all over the world producing tremendous content about the Bengals. And I don't mean the traditional outlets. I'm talking about the website creators, the podcasters, the film study analysts, and the message board operators. You guys are awesome. I just wish I had more time to read, watch, and listen to all of your content. But please know that your hard work and passion for the team is truly appreciated. Now... Time to bring in my broadcast partner, Dave Lapham. All right, let's start with some news that broke on Wednesday morning. Joe Mixon was named the AFC Offensive Player of the Week after his great game against Jacksonville. 25 carries, 151 yards, and two touchdowns. Six catches, 30 yards, and another touchdown. 181 total yards, which is a new career high. My question for you is, why? And here are your options. A, Jacksonville stinks. B. Alex Redman and the offensive line were really good. C, whatever they did at the hospital on Saturday night when he had chest pains <laughs> was powerful. Or D, it was simply a matter of time. I think that uh, the hospital is, is a little bit of a factor. I like when Joe said the doctors loved on him a little bit. That's a little injection. That's a little bit of relief right there. You get loved on a little bit, so you're, so you're able to play freely. I do think that uh, as far as Joe running the football, it was a bunch of guys. You know, the offensive line, the receivers, they did a great job in the perimeter, the tight ends, uh, sealing edges when they had to and, you know, setting an edge. I, I think that it was it was a, an upgrade in performance across the board from a running game standpoint because Joe has, has had issues, you know, make, having to make his first cut in his own backfield you know, between the tackles, just outside the tackles, multiple places. So there, there have been breakdowns everywhere. Um, and the receivers, again, that's what makes a five-yard run a 15-yard run or makes a five-yard run a 50-yard run and a touchdown. Or like in Joe's case, when he busted it outside, bounced it. You know, that, that was supposed to be a between-the-tackles run. Giovanni Bernard bounced for 11, and then he bounced for 30-plus for a touchdown. Tyler Boyd was great on both of those. And, and now you put the cornerback in a sweat. Because he's, you know, he he wants to keep leverage and, and pinch you if you're going between the tackles. Well, he was going too far down inside, too pinching way too far inside. Never set an edge, 
and Giovanni made him pay, then Joe made him pay. So once you start getting everybody doing what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to do it, it can look like that for sure. Plus, I mean, you, you gave in, in all your choice, you gave a little bit of uh, a little bit of reason for everything. <laughs> Jacksonville's not up to snuff from what they've been going against. There's no question. Absolutely no question. No question. We will specifically get to Alex Redmond's impact in just a bit, but did anything stand out about the offensive line's performance in general? I, I think Jonah is getting better on a on a weekly basis. And, you know, he was lining up against the best guy. And and Allen was not well, I mean, we weren't talking about him. So when you're not talking about a guy, he's being held in check. He had the most bogus sack in history. Right. When right. Uh, Joe got down at the end of the game, the whole post game, I'm saying he wasn't sacked at all. And then you look at yeah. the stats, and technically he lost about two inches when Joe Burrow was trying to kill the clock. Right. Right. And and you know, I, I, Joe, if Joe knew that was going in the books as a sack, he would have made sure. Even if he took a hit, he would have made sure to gain another foot hmm. to make sure his offensive line didn't get. Nicked with a sack because he knows that they've been under the heat big time, and he was obviously very proud of their performance, and they made his life a lot easier during the the course of that football game. I mean, Allen um, Allen was responsible. He was the guy on the twist. He came inside on a super loop instead of just a, a tackle end twist where the tackle penetrates the end loops. He looped all the way inside to Trey Hopkins. And that was the guy that Trey Hopkins held that took the Tyler Boyd touchdown off the board. So he had an impact play there, you know, by forcing a penalty and, and again, got a bogus sack. But on a snap by – and Jonah had nothing to do with that one. You know, he came from the opposite side. Jonah wasn't on him on that, on that particular play. So every time that he lined up, I think, against Allen, I think it went pretty well for him. And, and that's, that was their best guy coming off the edge for sure. So I think his, his graph's going up. And I, he's that kind of guy. You know, I think he's not a guy that makes the same mistake over and over and over again. He learns from it, and he compartmentalizes it. And I think he's almost got, you know, he's got like a computer-like mind. He'll just click into that, oh, I've been in this situation. Here's the tendencies here. My percentage of doing this is that. I mean, he's got that uh, that computer-like mind, I think, that's really going to help him. He certainly looked good late in the game, getting out as yeah. the lead blocker on that one run around the left by Joe Mixon and literally taking the cornerback that he was blocking out of bounds. Yeah, chopped him down, and you know, took him off his feet and rolled him out of bounds. It was like, make that spare. You know, he, <laughs> he, he knocked that pin down and took it all the way through the gutter, you know? I mean... Way to go, Earl Anthony. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, he was he was... That that showed his athleticism. I mean, he was he was running with and and really, Dan. And I've been there. You're out in space, and you're an eighteen wheeler, and you're trying to stay with a Ferrari. It's got rack and pinion steering, and it's changing direction. Like whoa, whoa, whoa! I, you know, I can't change. And he's changed direction with him pretty well, and uh, and really made it made a hell of a play in space against a, a defensive back. I mean, they're that's what they're that's what impressed me when I when I see Joe Burrow with unblocked free runner linebackers unblocked free runner cornerbacks on blitzes and he does his little pirouette and tight spin and spin away from these guys dude some athleticism that's some short space ability short space quickness some suddenness to him and uh, Jonah was very good in short space no doubt on the other side of the ball the Bengals defense finally held an opponent under 100 rushing yards Jacksonville had 89 in the game it obviously helps to have the lead and force Jacksonville to throw it down the stretch but what did you think of the run defense in particular yeah, I thought it was better. Again, a forty-yard uh, run was nullified by penalty. You know, and that's that's helpful. That would that would have changed the dynamic of it. 
you know, pretty extensively. And, uh, you know, Robinson's a, he's a, he, he sold me. He's legit. That kid's, that kid's a good football player. Instead of 17 carries for 75 yards, you would have had 18 for 115, which is almost six and a half, you know, a carry. He ends up at 4.4, which looks good, looks better than, you know, than it has, that's for sure. But I do think they, uh, you know, they did a better job. They, they did a nice job with the mush rush of controlling Minshew, you know, not, not getting yards. He does a great job of finding a lane and abusing it and getting yards up the middle. He's more of a between-the-tackles runner when he scrambles rather than he's not a real speed guy, busted to the outside. And they did a good job of, uh, of preventing, you know, some of that because they've had their issues with quarterbacks, you know, rushing for yardage against them. And, of course, they're facing the best the NFL has to offer in this week. For the year, through four games, which is a quarter of the schedule, the Bengals are 27th in the NFL in rushing yards allowed, 16th in passing yards allowed. But I was looking at football outsiders because they have that DVOA statistic, mm-hmm. which takes into account the quality of the opposition and, and the game situation. A five-yard gain on third and 10 is not as bad from a defensive perspective right. as a five-yard gain on first and 10. Correct. So looking at that statistic, the Bengals' defense actually checks in at 16th in the NFL, according to Football Outsiders, right in the middle of the pack. Are we starting to think that maybe the Bengals' defense is closer to the middle of the pack than the bottom of the pack? You know, I, I do like I do like that they try to uh, give you criterion instead of just it, it, five yards. There's five-yard runs, and then there's five-yard runs. Right. They're, on, they're not all born the same and built the same. Right, and the quality of opposition is figured in as well. And, yeah. I, and I like that. You know, I mean, look, look, look what Cleveland's doing. Cleveland went for over 300 against Dallas. You know, all of a sudden, the 200 yards given up against Cleveland, it's not good, but hell, it's 100 yards better than what Dallas did. You know, and, and they were supposed to win their division and be a playoff you know, contender and, and everything else. So that, that's, that's my point. Dan, this, this AFC North, if the Bengals had won the two games they should have won, they'd lose to Cleveland, but they'd be 3-1. and one. Still be fourth in the division because a tiebreaker with a division <laughs> loss. But everyone in the division would have three wins, and nobody would have more than one loss, and Pittsburgh wouldn't have lost yet because they have a game that hasn't been played. But, I mean, the AFC North and the Bengals have, you know, two games against everybody. The AFC North is no joke. 10-4-1. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Can the Bengals petition the NFL to join the NFC East? <laughs> Three, 12, and one as a division yep. in Philadelphia with the same one and two record, one, two, and one record as the Bengals currently alone in first with Washington and Dallas tied for second at one and three and the Giants bringing up the rear at 0 and four. Yeah, I mean, the Bengals would be in a virtual tie with the Eagles, both with one, two, and one records atop the division because they tied as a division rivalry uh, game there if they were in that division. That's, that's sick. That, that just tells you, you know, there's the penthouse and there's the outhouse and there's, there's houses in between. And, and I don't know how these, you know, uh, stats are going to be factored by, you know, how you incorporate a variable that, that says this team is exponentially better than that team, or not even necessarily the team. This defensive lineman is on a crap team, but this defensive lineman is a Pro Bowl guy. And this one guy, it's hard for anybody to block this guy. So if you play against this guy – your numbers aren't going to be as good as if you play against some schmo, you know. And I don't know how they ever factored that in. To me, there's nothing more true than looking at tape and trusting your eyeballs and the guy's doing a pretty good job against high-caliber competition and more than handling his own against guys he should. That's a good football player. 
because that guy that he's having just, you know, a little bit more difficult time with, that guy's a pro bowler. He's been there five times. There's a reason he's been there five times. He's not doing it just against this guy. He does it against almost every guy. So I, th- that's why those things, in my mind, are so, so tough to so soft to buy into. I mean, I, I think they're all great tools. And plus, the other thing is, sometimes coaches, honestly, I mean, it's like the scheme puts you in a tough spot. How do you factor that in? He didn't block that guy that way because he was coached not to. And you're taking points away from him. You're giving him demerits because he didn't get that guy blocked. Well, that's what he's supposed to do. And the coach was like, don't worry about that. Well, don't worry about it, but pro football focus and everybody's ripping my ass because, you know, <laughs> they're saying I didn't get this done. So it, it, it's, it's hard. There, there are some variables that are still almost impossible to factor into the, those equations. They really are. We know the Bengals won't have Mike Daniels again this week. He's going to miss at least three games with the elbow injury. Geno Atkins, we'll see. He's doing a little bit of individual stuff at practice, but uh, it's still very much a question mark. There are some veteran accomplished defensive tackles out there. Marcel Darius, Mr. Big Stuff. Yes. Snags Harrison. Oh, yeah. Domata Pecco. Mm-hmm. Normally, I would say they won't do it. They'll wait a few weeks with the guys that they have on the roster and, you know, hope that Geno's playing soon and Mike Daniels is back in three weeks. But as aggressive as they were this offseason, and they obviously acted quickly to get Mike Daniels before the season began, what do you think? Do you think that they might nibble at one of those veteran defensive linemen? It all depends on how veteran they are. I think if I think there's an age cutoff. I think if they feel like they bring in another veteran guy who hasn't really been doing that much and is vulnerable for, to injury, that why take on another one? Yeah. Slap another one, you know, on injury reserve or keep him on the roster and ho- hope he gets healthy. So I think the one that makes the most sense to me is Darius because he's not um, – you know he's the he's the younger one. He's played the most recently. You know recent football. That's the AJ Green Andy Dalton draft class. Right, right. And I mean, he's not a kid. Obviously, right. he's not a kid. But I mean, snacks and some of these. I mean, Dom- Domitas up there. You know, he's he's been around. So I I think that's the that's the fear. I think that a lot of teams in the league have not bringing these guys in because ugh, you bring in a guy that hasn't hasn't been playing football. And again, there's shape and then there's football shape. And look at all there. There's been like three or four Achilles tears. I mean, the Achilles tendon is the vulnerable thing after this coronavirus. It seems like uh, tight ends, defensive backs. I mean, they've they've been tearing Achilles. The Bengals know all about it with uh, uh, CJ and uh, Tampa Bay lost Howard to an Achilles tear. And I know there was a, a safety that uh, lost going to lose the season to an Achilles tear. So I think I think all of that is uh, is is part of it. But um, it's going to be interesting to see. You know, if they do decide to bring somebody in like that. And, and you know what, Dan? Geno Atkins, in hindsight, IR at three weeks. You could have put him on IR and maybe done something else. With him. Obviously, they didn't think it was that serious. Right. And now all of a sudden, here it is a month plus, and he's, it's, you know, 50-50 if he's going to be available this week. Man, what is what really – would it have been better to just have surgery or whatever it would have taken to put him – and then slap him on IR and as many weeks as it took to get him back? I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty with this stuff, but obviously this thing was more significant than what they initially thought. I, I think they put them week to week, like right away, and man, it's been a lot of weeks, a lot of weeks. The Bengals had their fourth right guard in their first four games last Sunday. Alex Redmond getting his first start of the year. The Bengals passed for 300 yards, ran for 205 yards, and only gave up one sack. 
So how good was Alex Redman? Here are Jonah Williams and Zach Taylor. Alex is a great player. He's got a lot of he's got a lot of violence and physicality. I think that's the first thing that uh, the coaches and his teammates ever notices about him is you know he wants to come off the ball and just dominate people every play. And you know he did a, he did a lot of that, and so it was good to have him back. He fit in well. You know he had good good chemistry there with Trey and uh, with Bobby, and brought a physicality there. And uh, again, it wasn't perfect. And I think he'd be the first one to tell you that. But there were some things that he did a nice job of. And he was the first person to tell us that immediately after the game last Sunday. Alex Redmond said, I didn't play all that well, but he played better than Fred Johnson or Billy Price had been playing the previous couple of weeks. He did, Dan. And the very first, looking looking back at the game, the very first run play, whiff. I thought, oh. <laughs> he, he was so geeked up. I'm sure, he, you know, Redmond's like, eh. I, I'm sure he had all his weight forward. The defensive line's a little Olay move. I mean, he went, a whiff. <laughs> and it's like okay, choke it down a little bit. Let's 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 calm let's calm this down. And then he he started doing some of the things that that Alex Redmond does. He he when I talk about finishing, it's like a lot of times guys hit and stalemate, and a lot of people just stay in the stalemate. He will finish. He'll manipulate his hands. He'll roll his hips. He'll do things to to get a second movement on a player and finish them. And he'll pancake people, knock them right on their backside, you know, or knock them over, throw them down, whatever the case may be. That's where the, you know, like the violence and the physicality that that uh, guys are talking about. And that's what that's what he does. You know, he's a he's a martial arts guy, you know, and he's a wrestler. So every wrestler I played against, man, they you know, they would hunker down, knees over the ankles, hips over the knees, and was like a rooted tree. I, when Redmond kind of hunkers down, he's a load. You know, so he's got that part of it. And he's got he's got the hands with the martial arts stuff. I mean, he, he'll like you know kung fu you in a heartbeat kind of thing with his hands. He just has to physically. He's NFL. He has to make sure that you know he doesn't get overly geeked. You know, and, and just staying composed, control. And again, that that controlled rage. Which I know every time I say it, it sounds stupid, but it is what you have to try to strive for. And again, like we talked about, Bobby Hart, Trey Hopkins. They know everybody's assignment in every play, not just theirs. So I think that was a big comforting hmm. thing for Alex Redman. If he had any questions in the huddle or at the line of scrimmage, he'd just lean over to those guys and like, you know, hey, let me double check this. And that that's that's big. And and as a result, he didn't see any assignment errors in there with him. You had the whiff like I talked about, but I didn't see him blocking wrong people. It didn't look like to me. But I think Bobby and you know and Trey need to take a bow at that. The Bengals signed Xavier Suofilo in the offseason to be the right guard. He was coming back from a broken leg last year, and then he got hurt in week one. He will be back at some point this year. But, you know, Alex Redmond's an interesting guy because he got into the NFL at a really young age. Mm -hmm. He's in his fourth year. He's only 25. Yeah. Is a uh, a healthy, head-straight Alex Redmond a better right guard than Xavier Suofilo? Do we know? Yeah. You think so? I think from what mm -hmm. I yeah, from what I've seen, from what I've seen of Xavier, and again, it's just training camp. I thought he played best in the scrimmage, but I think I think Alex Redman, if Alex Redman stays healthy and and you know plays at his highest level, I think his highest level might be higher than Xavier. Xavier Suafilo is he's got a lot of intangible leadership. He's unbelievable in terms of all that. You know, and that gives him that gives him some some uh, some juice. You know, in terms of what coaches think about, it. I mean, with players like that, it, you're looking for added value, and he gives that added value. And Alex isn't given that added value at, at this point in time. But based on just pure physical abilities, I think Alex's upside is is that much. I, because Xavier has been injured; he broke his leg. Now he's got an ankle injury. I mean, those are starting to pile up. When you start, I don't care if the house has a crack in the foundation. 
you know, like Bill Walton, his career ended because of foot injuries, breaking the feet and all that. You have foot and, you know, ankle and knee injuries and stuff, man. All of a sudden, it can't support the rest of the building. That, that's when you start to, to have some issues. And, and honestly, Dan, Alex Redman hadn't done anything for so long. This is his, I mean, to go in and play as well as he did, in my mind, was kind of remarkable. He's going to only get better. His, he better because he's going against Baltimore now. <laughs> he's going against Calais Campbell and Brandon Williams. He's not going against, you know, the guys he went against in Jacksonville, you know, Brian and whoever else they had inside there. It, it's a different ball game in Baltimore against those two beasts. NFL Next Gen Stats tracks something called average separation for wide receivers. It's on a catch or on an incompletion, so it doesn't take into account the passing route. It doesn't take into account plays where they weren't the person that the ball was thrown to and maybe they were wide open. But this is strictly how much separation they have on balls thrown to them. Well, so far this season, A.J. Green is tied for last in the NFL with former Bengals teammate Marvin Jones. Earlier this week, Zach Taylor was asked about A.J. Green so far this year. That's not a concern for us or A.J. A.J. is doing the right things. And we, we got a lot of really good receivers. Um, we got tight ends that can get targets, backs that can get targets. There's times where A.J. is open and the ball's going elsewhere for explosive plays. And I think that's the key to our success is not forcing the ball to, to any weapon. Um, just let it play out naturally. His attitude's unbelievable. You know, you watch that third and one tight zone run to, to Mixon for the touchdown. You just watch his energy there. Um, you know, it was in the third quarter. And at that point, he'd had one catch. And uh, just to see his, his celebration, the way he responded when his teammates uh, made a big play, just says everything you need to know about AJ. And, and his time will come. You know, it, it, there's going to be moments where he has unbelievable games and um, he's going to help us win here. And, you know, it's just it's uh, it's tremendous to have that guy as a captain and part of this offense and this team. Coach, when you watch AJ Green on film, does he look like the same player that you know he's been for the past decade? Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's a you know he comes off the ball and you can see the respect that he gets from the DBs. And um, again, there's opportunities there where where you know you call the ball thinking it might go there number one, and all of a sudden it pops off somewhere else for um, a big gain somewhere else. So again, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to second-guess those decisions. One catch, three yards for A.J. Green last week on the first play from scrimmage. Yeah, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a tough run for A.J. in the first uh, month of the season, the first four games. I asked John Harbaugh during the uh, presser that he had about A.J. Green. I said, when you watch A.J. on tape, you know, do you still see the same guy? And Remember the uh, on NFL Films or NFL Network, John Harbaugh saying, are we ever going to cover this guy? I mean, A.J. was just, that's when he was just ripping the Ravens apart multiple times. And he said, you know, yeah, he, he's ripped us. Yeah, it's the same. He didn't, he wasn't effusive in his praise. He didn't rip him, didn't think he was going to rip him. But he didn't really throw all lavish praise out there like I thought. He just stayed away from it totally, which, I don't know. I will say, uh, get my COVID test. Uh, this week, and I was in the, I was right behind AJ in the trailer, and I'm telling you, looking at him, he, he's unbelievable looking athlete. I mean, he is. If you put requirements into a computer, it would spit out AJ Green physically. The Bengals face the reigning unanimous MVP this week for the first of two times this year, Lamar Jackson. So far this year, he leads Baltimore in rushing yards. 235 through four games. He's averaging six yards a carry. He has a passer rating of 111.3, seven touchdown passes and one pick. 
Some of the Bengals will be seeing him for the first time, including rookie linebacker Akeem Davis-Gaither, who was asked this week if it's a little bit overwhelming to face the prospect of taking on Lamar Jackson. No, nah, I wouldn't say overwhelming. Uh, it's, just fo- it's just football. <laughs> how, how do you prepare for that, though? Uh, just sticking to your technique. Um, we all know that he's fast. He can cut and all that. You just got to try to take away take away something. Uh, you're not going to be able to take away his speed, so having great angles, trying to give him a one-way route and to try to get him on the ground. How many times did you see Lamar's spin move, that long touchdown he had against the Bengals last year before you even came here? Uh, I've seen it quite a bit. <laughs> he's tired of seeing yeah. it he's not alone in that uh, Bengals locker room obviously every guy who was on the field in that game last year at Paul Brown Stadium has been tired of seeing that replay the Ravens are three and one the one loss at home to Kansas City and the Chiefs did a great job against Lamar Jackson particularly in the passing game 97 passing yards a passer rating of 73.1. Any sort of formula provided by the Kansas City Chiefs? You know, my thing is, and I'm not sure, I'd have to study the Chiefs tape a lot more than I did, but if you can get a lead, play with a lead, and then make them think they have to throw the football, because, I mean, they're, they're human. Greg Roman's human in that regard. I mean, if they fall behind by a couple scores, uh, you know, he, he'll probably try to throw the football a little bit more. You have to make Lamar Jackson throw outside the numbers. He, with his RPO, a lot of his passing yards are off the RPO in the middle of the football field. And that's where Andrews, the tight end, will gash you because linebackers are sucking up, safeties are nosy because of that great running game, and then he's killing you in the middle of the football field. So, And that's the, the ball's not in the air very long, you know, attacking the middle of the football field. Make Lamar Jackson throw it outside. Make him throw it toward the numbers and, 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 you know, get a lead and try to expand on that lead. The thing about Lamar Jackson that's so tough in the running game, coaches work all week in the running game trying to scheme how they can outgap the opponent. Get one more person at the point of attack than the opponent. When it's 11-on-11 football, that's one, one more gap. That's one more person than normally in the NFL because normally quarterback hands off and watches. Now this guy is running it so you can get an extra helmet at the point of attack and, the, and you can get out gap. So you have to defensively. You have to play your gap control responsibility. And can I just jump in when you say 11-on-11 football, somebody out there is going, well, what's he talking about? It's always 11-on-11 football. No. If you picture a normal running play, quarterback hands it off, running back gets the ball, quarterback stands behind the play twiddling his thumbs. Sure. So now you've got nine guys trying to block 11 people, removing the person who has the ball and the quarterback who's doing nothing. Right. If the quarterback runs the ball, now you've got an extra person that can block. Got an extra gap. You know, an extra – like gap – they they call uh, power counters. It's gap run game. Instead of, you know, inside-outside zone – now you're blocking down. You're trying to get extra bodies at the point of attack. So now when you have him running the ball, you have extra bodies at the point of attack, like we just described. Plus, the guy that's running it might be the most athletic, fastest guy in the field. When He's definitely the most athletic of almost anybody in the National Football League, and he's probably in the top five in, ter- in terms of raw speed. When you have that running the football uh, with extra blockers in front of him by scheme and – I mean, Ricard, that big uh, defensive lineman slash fullback, 311-pound guy, that's an extra helmet at the point of attack. He's crushing people. The only guy in the NFL last year that had over 100 snaps offensively, defensively, and special teams. 
This guy, Patrick Ricard. Patrick Ricard. Mm-hmm. This guy is a, a gem. I mean, the unsung hero of that football team. So you have big tight ends. You got a 311 pound fullback, and you get that that son of a gun behind them. You know, Orlando Zeus Brown can eclipse the sun. You know, you get these big offensive linemen on the edge. Zeus Brown, boom, you know, coming off the ball, tight ends, fullback. And then here comes this little fleet-footed son of a gun. It is, you know, he, he, he makes you miss. I mean, he, you know, he, he's like he's ripping your ACLs, MCLs, LCLs. Everything, your knees are ripping up as you're trying to change direction with this guy. The Ravens' defensive coordinator is Wink Martindale. Not Winston Conrad Martindale, the legendary host of such game shows as Tic-Tac-Doe and High Rollers. No, this is Don Wink Martindale, the linebackers coach at UC for three years under Rick Minter. And this guy loves to blitz. On most plays, there will be six guys right up there at the line of scrimmage filling all the gaps. Sometimes all six will go after Joe Burrow. More often than not, it'll be five. Sometimes it might be as few as three. What you don't know from snap to snap is how many are coming and where they're coming from. Right. That's the bottom line. It's all about confusion, uncertainty, being unsettled, you know, um, making the offensive line make some sort of mistake, either from an assignment standpoint or a technique standpoint, setting for the wrong person, taking a false step the wrong way, you know, uh, not being able to trust your eyes, you know, defensive players talk about trusting their eyes. I can tell you, when a team's doing what the Baltimore Ravens do as an offensive lineman, you have to trust your eyes as well. And uh, Wink Martindale makes that tough. I mean, they're, they are definitely a challenge. And um, But if you can beat them, if somehow you can make a couple of plays and make him a little bit hesitant about doing that, uh, he'll go. When you're inside the 20, he's bringing it. Uh, it, it's automatic. Just just count on it. It's happening inside the 20. Inside the twin, inside the 10-yard line, he'll go zero coverage. Nobody in the middle of the football field. He'll just go zero coverage and just and try to knock you backwards. He is as an aggressive a defensive coach as there is in any level of football, honestly. And like I said, almost 55% of the time they blitzed last year. That led the league. It's uh, Bal- Pitts- Baltimore and Pittsburgh are one and two, both over 50% of the time bringing it. And Maybe they're onto something. They're the two best, de- one of the two, two of the best defenses in the National Football League. They just so happen to both be in the AFC North, and you got a rookie quarterback, Joe Burrow, trying to figure it out. It's going to be very, very interesting uh, dynamic when he faces those defenses. And yet, so far this year, Baltimore only has one more sack than the Bengals do. Yep. Now, last week against Washington, the Ravens had three, and they hit Dwayne Haskins nine times. Matthew Judon, number 99, had five of those quarterback hits. But up until then, Cleveland, Houston, Kansas City had done a nice job of at least avoiding sacks. And interceptions. They only have two interceptions, but they've forced six fumbles and recovered five of them. That's where they've done their damage as a defense. They've knocked the ball out of people's hands. Five fumble recoveries tied for second most in the National Football League. And another thing that this uh, Ravens defense has done, they've pitched a shutout in the third quarter. Uh, they've, they've not allowed one point in the third quarter. Even the Kansas City Chiefs in the third quarter scored squadouche. I mean, they've outscored the opponent 20 to nothing in the third quarter. So, you know, there are, there's multiple circumstances and reasons for that. If the Baltimore Ravens had lost a bunch of tosses and they got the ball to start the second half and they go on a, one of their patented seven and a half, eight, nine-minute drives, the quarter's almost done. 
anyway. So you have minimal possessions in that quarter, depending on how well the offense is played. But, I mean, to not give up a point in four games in the third quarter, that's, uh, that's saying something about a defensive football team. After allowing Joe Burrow to get hit 17 times in the Philadelphia game, the Bengals' offensive line cut that number down to five last week against Jacksonville. That was excellent. Looking at the season so far, Burrow has dropped back to pass 203 times, second most in the NFL to Dak Prescott. He's been pressured 75 times, according to Pro Football Focus. That is 36.9% of the time that he's dropped back to pass. He's been pressured, and that is the eighth highest rate in the NFL. Other guys who have been pressured more frequently, Kirk Cousins, 41%. Fellow rookie, Justin Herbert, 41%. Daniel Jones from the Giants, 41%. Sam Darnold, 40%. None of those guys are doing very well, at least in terms of wins and losses. Then you've got Russell Wilson, 37.7%, slightly ahead of Joe Burrow. And, of course, right now he's probably the leading candidate to be MVP. 16 touchdown passes in the first four games. First time it's ever happened. 16 touchdown passes for a game. And when you look at the numbers, Joe Burrow, 116 for 177. Second most attempts and uh, completions in the National Football League. Jackson, 67 for 98. He's almost half of uh, Burrow's numbers in both categories. And that's why he's been sacked 11 times. They're 31st in the league in sack per pass attempt because he hasn't been – Dropping back as much, obviously, in, in, in 11 sacks. The Bengals have given up 15 sacks, but Burrow has thrown it 177 times, and Jackson's only thrown it 98. So I, Jackson, obviously, is not making quick reads with the football, holding on to it, you know, cre- creating, extending, and doing all the things like an athletic guy like him want. I mean, they're, they're not – their game is not for Jackson to be in the pocket, Two reads in the front side, get to the back side, check it down. No, that's not that's not uh, Jackson's game at all. So it's going to be contrasting styles. And I wonder how aggressive the Bengals will be in terms of blitzing Jackson if they get in favorable down and distance situations. Do you blitz them? I know one thing. If you blitz and play man, if the blitz doesn't get there and the guys have their backs turned trying to cover people down the field, he'll rip you. He will rip you. So do you do you play like soft zone and and don't blitz? I mean, he, that these are some of the problems that start to happen if you don't get some sort of a lead against these Baltimore Ravens. One update on one of the veteran defensive tackles we were talking about: Damon Snacks Harrison is no longer on the market. The 31-year-old run stopper was signed to the Seahawks practice squad on Wednesday. Now, time for this week's one-on-one player conversation. This week, Zach Taylor said there are two keys to slowing down Baltimore's lethal rushing attack, discipline and tackling. Those words are perfect for safety Von Bell. He's one of the best tackling safeties in the NFL, and his discipline on and off the field is legendary. We're spending a few minutes with Bengals safety Von Bell. We are recording this on Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. I got up a few hours ago. I've had coffee and toast. I've done some reading and research. When did you get up and what have you accomplished today? I got up at like 4.15, um, did my little workout this morning, did my, you know, had my breakfast made and ready to go. I hit the weight room with the fellas this morning and uh, got it going and did a couple of meetings and ready to go. Von Bell won, Dan Hoard nothing in the scoreboard of what's been accomplished on a Wednesday morning. Who are some of your fellow early birds? 
Oh, yeah, Tony Brown. Yeah, Winston Rose. Uh, yeah, a couple more guys on there, but a couple of my DVs, but um, a couple of linebackers too. So, um, you know, they're getting up with me a little bit, uh, meet me in the weight room. Uh, but, you know, still some crust in the eyes. <laughs> but, uh, but, they're, but they're getting up and going, and uh, they're just trying to get better each and every day. And I appreciate them doing that, making the team better. For visiting with Von Bell, the first time you met with the Cincinnati media, you were wearing a baseball hat that said, no bull. That's a company that makes athletic gear. But is there a message there about your approach to football and life? For sure. That's everything. That's, that's who I am. Uh, that's how I was raised. And um, we go out and get it every day. And uh, we just challenge ourselves each and every day to find that 1% to get better. And uh, that's where that hat comes in, in play. But no bull, no BS, and just um, keep going. Von, people that are watching the games on TV will notice that you are the guy on defense with that little green dot on the back of your helmet, meaning that you are the person that's in communication with defensive coordinator Lou Anarumo and then relay the play call to your teammates. Have you done that before, and do you like the responsibility? Uh, this is my first year doing it, um, but I've always been a big communicator on the defense end. Um, but uh, it's an honor to have it this year. And uh, I love the role, um, love being in charge, and uh, love having my troops out there listen to me and ready to go to war with them. Does it take any getting used to to have that voice in your ear as you're getting ready for the play? For sure. Uh, we got to anticipate uh, the play in the situation, uh, how he's going to call the game. And um, it, it, it get a little tough when it, uh, you know, two-minute drives or if they're doing hurry-up offense, trying to get a call in. But we just try to use our signals then. Um, but um, other than that, everything's pretty smooth, calm and collected. And um, reasons get to play in and um, just reiterate it throughout the whole defense so everybody get to play call so we can play fast. We're spending a few minutes with Von Bell. When you signed as a free agent with the Bengals, I reached out to UC's head coach, Luke Fickle, who was your defensive coordinator at Ohio State. And he said from the day you arrived on campus at OSU, you had a presence, an it factor that commanded respect. Is that an intentional thing on your part, or does it just come naturally? I think it's a little both. Um, you know, coming into the league now, uh, everything is earned. Uh, it's not just given. You got to go out there and show what you can do and what you can bring, and that's uh, how you gain respect in the locker room and throughout the league. And there's just being you every day, just going to work, putting your hard head on, and uh, really just going out there, just taking care of what you can take care of, and just really just going out there being you just making the plays that come to you and just really just having, giving everybody respect and really just being you, having a, uh, an outgoing personality and just challenging everybody. And it's just, this is being me. And um, I think it just comes naturally, but it's also, I work at it every day. We're getting up every morning with my routine and I really just sticking to it and um, sticking to the process and just trusting the process and just letting myself just be myself and everything else go take care of itself. So this week you face the Ravens. And Lamar Jackson, you got a little taste of facing him a couple of years ago when you were still with the Saints and he was a rookie. He wasn't starting yet, but he did get in for several plays in that game. Did it make a big impression? Oh, for sure. Um, we know what he can do. Uh, his legs can beat you. And um, and that's what, why he's so special. He's a dual threat. He can throw it. He can, he can do it all. And um, what really got to make him play left-handed. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. The guys are excited on the defensive side for this challenge. We're building momentum each and every week. We're getting better each and every week at practice, and uh, we just keep on stacking them. And it, it, what a challenge we're going to have this week, and uh, I can't wait to get to it. When you say make him play left-handed, you're obviously not being literal there. What do you mean? Oh, yeah, make him drop back passing. 
um, their bread and butter is running uh, gap scheme runs. And, uh, you know, they they got him. Uh, they got a, a bunch of running backs that, that can run the ball pretty well. And um, and, and that's what they do well. And uh, that's how they get guys on their toes with the run game. And they can set up the boot game off that and the pass game off that. So you got to stop the run and make them play any back uh, drop back passing game and really just make them play left-handed. There's no other team right now that plays quite like they do. They'll line up with two tight ends most of the time. They've got a 311-pound fullback in there. How challenging is it just to face a team that's a little bit different from everybody else? It's very different. Um, you know, they're in the pistol offense, and they got a lot of the gap scheme runs and a whole bunch of turbo motions, and they always just try to draw your eyes. You just got to reach your keys and just play fast and get down in there uh, as it go be a big run emphasis, uh, get the pass higher early, uh, make go plays and tackle. And uh, we just got sworn to the ball, get all 11 hats to the ball, and we just go out there and just have fun and reach keys. You're answering these questions with a smile on your face. It sounds like you relish this challenge. For sure. Every week, uh, it's a new opponent, a uh, new challenge. And uh, we just uh, try to hear from the head coaching and defense coordinator and rally the troops and give us a mission. And we, we got to go accomplish that. And that's the beauty of this uh, NFL life. Uh, you get 16 weeks of that, and uh, you just go out there with your uh, with your soldiers and just get ready to go. Get in the foxhole and let's go to war. Last thing for Bengal safety, Von Bell. You're four games into your Bengals tenure. Are you still adjusting to team and scheme, or or does it feel like uh, you're pretty much uh, you know entrenched in this organization at this point? Uh, you know, it's still different for me, but uh, you know, I I can adapt very well. Uh, so everything is some nuances at times, but. Uh, I'm trying to stick to it, uh, keep keep on growing within the system and within the locker room. And um, I'm, just, I'm really just taking it, honing it in, and really just enjoying the moment. It's the no-bull philosophy. Well, I appreciate the time. Best of luck this week. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Now time to turn our attention to this week's opponent, the 3-1 and Baltimore Ravens. And few people know the team better than Nestor Aparicio from WNST Radio and the author of two books about the team. He joined Dave Lapham and me this week on the Bengals Game Plan Show. So the Ravens are three and one. Their three wins are all by at least two touchdowns. Their one loss, 14 points to Kansas City at home. Why can't John Harbaugh beat Andy Reid? Well, I don't know. You know, some people would say, why can't Lamar Jackson beat uh, Patrick Mahomes? Maybe they're not on the field at the same time. But uh, look, they play three times, and the games are getting. The, the differences in the games have gotten more wide, not closer together. And, you know, Lamar is going through the sophomore thing. He's going to, you know, see everybody this time around. Uh, the Bengals spent much of the offseason, right, uh, worried about those ankles that were broken in the middle of the field there last year. Uh, he embarrassed a lot of teams, a lot of defenses, embarrassed the, the L.A. Rams last year. Um, a lot of teams had extra time on their hands. That No one was out socializing in the spring. And I'm sure the coaches everywhere were scheming up a way to stop him, specifically in this division, right, where uh, you guys in, in Cleveland, Pittsburgh, that he's the league MVP and what the Titans did last year to him and what the Chargers did the year before, not just in frustrating him, but getting the Ravens behind. This, is, uh, this offense has not yet come from behind. Now, you'd say, well, they were 14-2, and two, right? You don't have to come from behind often. 
But this isn't the John Elway down 10 points, four minutes left to go, pull the rabbit out of the hat kind of offense. This is the offense that gets up on you. It's a defense that forces a turnover, plays a little field position, plays a lot second and one because they run the ball aggressively and do it well with Lamar Jackson and a three-headed monster. And then they're up on you 13-3, to and they're up on you 20-10, to and then they just run the ball and shorten the game. It's different when the other team gets the lead. And as much as the defenses have played well and the Chargers in that playoff game had a great scheme, sort of a 92 defense, uh, and the Titans just matched up well and frustrated Lamar early and stopped him on a fourth down, and, you know, Harbaugh will go for it on his own 32-yard line, fourth and one, we're going to go for it. When you don't make it, then you have a problem, and that is really what happened in the Titans game last year. The Chiefs, however, was more about just getting up on them and making the Ravens play differently than they want to play. And if you can do that, you you might have some success because this offense isn't built to chuck it around and have a second half where they throw the ball 28 or 30 times. Interesting this morning, uh, John Harbaugh, when he had his uh, conference call with the local media here in Cincinnati, you know, I asked him about how many different defenses have you seen over the last couple of years, how many twists and wrinkles and everything else have you seen in an effort to stop Jackson? And he said, you know, we know going into the game that they're not going to run the defense they've run all year long necessarily. And that uh, that's not easy for us. He goes, as coaches, we're, we're basically trying to look at what they're doing defensively and what would be the next adaptation they would do to handle Jackson. So he said, we're guessing. We don't know what they're going to run. So he said, it's not easy for us sometimes game planning as well. I'm thinking, eh, it's not easy maybe to necessarily game plan specifically against a certain defenses, but, man, this offense, you can call it old school, you can call it revolutionary, but it's contrarian to what everybody else is doing in the NFL, and it's hard to prepare for in a short week, and it makes people do things they haven't done, and that's where mistakes happen, and that's where Baltimore gashes people when those defenses that they're not running things they, they're comfortable with make mistakes. Well-constructed defenses who've communicated, who've been together for a period of time, are going to fare better because, for me, it's all about communication, right? And trying to stop him, you need to identify the ball. And, and I tell my audience in Baltimore this, and I'll tell your audience, I was out in L.A. last year, and you guys are all fans. You remember the goofy purple uniforms out there, and Eric Weddle looked like standing mustard, you know. <laughs> and I know Weddle well from his years in Baltimore, and he's playing for the Rams, and he had spent a year, you know, watching Lamar, being Lamar's teammate, trying to win. He was a part of that team when the Chargers came in to beat him. And, and he said to several Baltimore reporters up in the, uh, you know, after they lost 45-6, to six, Eric Weddle said, I, I practiced against it. I preached it to everyone what we needed to do, and then you didn't know where the ball was. And, and, and you had no idea where the ball was going. So even on a communicative defense, that's an issue. Then you need to make sure there's, there's two, three bodies wherever the ball's going and flowing to the ball. And you better be able to cover on the backside because Hollywood Brown will get behind you. Mark Andrews will get underneath you. All the things that we've seen Patrick Mahomes do, we've seen the Ravens do to be effective offensively. But that's when they're getting after you in second and one and second and two uh, and grinding you down. And that's, quite frankly, we're at the quarter pole, guys. There's no Marshall Yonda in this offense anymore. So it has looked different. And there were questions for John Harbaugh on Wednesday about why it's looked different. Well, you take a Hall of Fame guard out. Dave, I know you'd have a few things to say about that. Oh, that's my guy. Love Marshall Yonda. 
<laughs> well, you, we've wondered for, what, 14 years now what it would look like without Marshall Yond. In the same way that you guys are trying to figure out post-Whitworth and post, you know, the, the, the offense that you had when Marvin was around, everyone's in a transitional phase. And the Ravens have really good football players. I mean, this, this is a really good team. This isn't about Lamar or just about Harbaugh. This is about them drafting well. This is about them stealing Marcus Peters and signing him. This is about them signing Marlon Humphrey last week to a long-term deal. This is about them playing now without Flacco's cap number and playing with a rookie contract with Lamar so they have some benefits of being able to sign Calais Campbell, who's a very large man. Um, but, but they're the better team most weeks, and they push you around on offense and confuse you and athletic you most weeks. But then the Chiefs show up. And you asked me at the beginning, what happened against the Chiefs? Chiefs are a better football team right now. That, that's what happened against them. And I'm waiting to see what happens to the Ravens when there is a fumble or there is a mistake or there are some mistakes. And they get down against an inferior team, quote-unquote inferior team. Will they be able to come back from a deficit because they haven't been able to do that yet because they win a lot and they're up a lot. And that would maybe solve a little bit of what happens when they play a better team. And I don't know that home field means anything yet. We don't have any fans anywhere enough to make enough noise. But when those things happen, and let's say Lamar has to go out to Kansas City in January and we solve COVID and the miracle happens and there's 70,000 people there and he's down 14 points, that's going to be – the, the true test for Lamar at some point to be able to lead a team back from a couple touchdowns down, doing it in the air, doing it on, you know, on the ground when things go wrong, because so many things have gone right, guys. I mean, th- this, this has been a juggernaut over a year and a half. It really has been. We're visiting with Nestor Aparicio from Baltimore. You mentioned Marvin Lewis, Nestor, and, and Lap and I have great respect for Marvin what, for what he did to elevate this franchise, and we Absolutely. certainly had a, a solid working relationship with him when he was here. But you became his close friend. How is Marvin these days, and is he determined to be a head coach again? You know, when I spend time with him, I don't talk to him about that sort of stuff. I mean, I, I guess uh, the, the Arizona State thing when we were talking was very much like, we're going to work every day and hoping to play football. You know, I mean, he's a football coach. And I don't know that, that there really is a, uh, an agenda to go back and coach in the NFL, that that is burning at him. I think this is a marriage of he lives there, it's convenient, he knows everyone involved, uh, his daughter's five minutes away, his son is five minutes away, and he loves coaching football. And Quite frankly, I think golf would bore him. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just think he loves football that much. And, you know, I don't know about you guys. Um, you're traveling or are you not traveling to these games? Not traveling. Okay. Well, then you're getting tested on how much you love football because I had it taken away from me. Like, I've done this for 24 years, and I own a sports radio station, and, you know, I've written books and, and all these things, and uh, I've had life experiences above and beyond sports or going to a game and, um, and I love baseball. My last name's Aparicio. The reason I'm in Baltimore is Louis brought a cousin from Venezuela, and here Louis. I am. So I am a freedom fighter. I was born in 68. Louis came here in 64, brought my father in 65, met my mother in 66, and here I am. So all these years later. So, you know, I, I, um, you know I'm a baseball guy, right, and I'm a football guy. And having sports taken away from all of us, right, for six months, I could never imagine – being, you know, April, May, June, July, with no sports anywhere in our culture, what would have to happen? You know, what kind of a war, what kind of a, a plague that would have to happen? 
And I missed the first game against Cleveland because I, I go to home and road. I've only missed seven games in 24 years. Wow. Uh, a couple of them were because my wife was ill in 14 and 15. And um, so, you know, I missed the first game, and I watched it on TV. First things first, the game's not the same in person. So anybody that comes down to, uh, you know, to the stadium in Cincinnati that sees football, it's different in person. It's better in person. If you love the game, you study the game a little bit, you can't really see the game as well on TV. Uh, Dave, I know they brought you in at all 22. But, you know, I watched the game with my cat the first week and thought, well, this is a plague. And, you know, sports <laughs> is, um, you know, for, for when a functioning society, right, the reward of a functioning society. And then I went down to Houston, and I flew, and I put a mask on, and I stopped and saw a special future friend of ours out in the desert and tried to get away from people for a couple days at a pool and take advantage of 108 degrees. And I went into Houston, and I sat on the roof with a mask on, and I thought it was going to make me feel, like, lonely or sad or, you know, it made me more sort of resolute that we're not going down like this, right? Like, this better be one of the very, very few football fanless games that I attend in Houston, Texas on the roof of that stadium where I've seen two Super Bowls play, right, incredible games. I was a big Houston Oilers fan during the 13 years when we didn't have a team in Baltimore. I just loved the Oilers. They were the team I adopted when you lose your football team, you know. And, um, and having, having said that, I went down there and watched the game, and I realized how much I love it, how much I love football. So you asked me about Marvin, you asked me about me, and you asked me about two guys drinking wine on a canyon looking down into a desert a couple weeks ago. I guess he gets up every morning and drives down the canyon, not for money, not because he thinks he's going to coach the Cowboys one day or whatever. I think he loves football, and I think having had football taken away from me, having sports taken away from me for six months, I love sports, I love football, I love being at the game, and I don't love being there when there's nobody there. I love it a lot more when there's fans, and I've learned that I love uh, music even more. Like, I miss concerts even more than I miss fanless football in Landover Sunday, you know? Final question, uh, and we appreciate you carving the time for us. Uh, you're, you're, you're a heck of a, heck of a guest. Don Wink Martindale, defensive coordinator, blitzed just under 55% of the time last year, sent five players or more, and people thought, you know, well, the pass rush suspect or whatever worked on it in the offseason season. Now he's blitzing 51-52%. Pittsburgh and Baltimore, two highest blitz percentages in the league. No surprise. Is it still because questionable pass rush, or is Don Wink Martindale can't help himself? He's just going to send five no matter what. Well, I think you know, he's got the ghost of Buddy in his ear, right? <laughs> send them all. Send them all. Uh, I, I, look, they've gotten up the field too much, right? And they've gotten burned. And, you know, when, when you're very, very capable coaches and you're very capable number one wonderkind quarterback get together. Uh, this team has not defended the screen pass yet and, and, and tight ends. But if, if, you don't, if they get to you first or get the quarterback off the spot and you don't have receivers getting separation uh, you know, down the field and you don't have a quarterback making quick reads, uh, it becomes three and out pretty quickly if that pressure gets to you. And, you know, part of that's the crowd noise and different things that happen at home in a way that create different things, certainly for Patrick Mahomes coming into our stadium. My wife wasn't in the upper deck screaming at him, uh, you know, that creates confusion and those, th- those kinds of things at the line of scrimmage that, you know, neither side has a competitive advantage on the road anymore, right, or at home anymore, I should say, for the defense. But I, I would say they've been very aggressive because they don't have any – they don't have a Michael McCrary. They don't have a specialist. They don't have an Elmas Doomerville anymore, right? So they're trying to create it in this way because he believes so much in his back end. They've invested so much. You know, they invested so much, guys. They told Earl Thomas. They just tapped him and said, get out. Yeah, that's unreal. 
you know, they just said, leave. We don't need you anymore because Chuck, they believe in Chuck Clark so much, and he's been such a good quarterback. You know, he's got the beautiful football mind and, and wearing the, the, the helmet and aligning the defense in the back. Patrick Queen comes in with a nice background in that. So they're hoping to get better, but they didn't practice much, right? I mean, they didn't have any of that going on, and I do think a lot of this is instinct. And I, I think it's winked that if we get after that young quarterback, you know, and we startle them and move them around a little bit, and our offense, and now we're up 17-3, to then, then we win. You know, and, and I think that that's part of being aggressive. That's just, it's bred in him, but I think he wishes he had a couple more real pass rushers and he could maybe be a little bit more creative on the back end, but the back end's so solid. These guys cover well. We'll have much more on the game this Friday afternoon on the Bengals Pep Rally Show from 3 to 6 on ESPN 1530. That's going to do it for this episode of the Bengals Booth Podcast brought to you by Prime Sport, the official hospitality partner of the Cincinnati Bengals. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe, and if you have a minute, give it a rating or share a comment. That helps more Bengals fans find this podcast. I'm Dan Horde, and thank you for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.